We'll be looking at Isaiah, mostly Isaiah chapter 53, but we'll get a running start into the chapter by beginning with chapter 52 and verse 13. You'll remember, and we'll look at this briefly, that Isaiah has just gone through a series of double commands. The Israelites command the Lord in Isaiah 51 to awake, awake, and actually do what you say you're going to do. The Lord responds in verse 12 of 51, I am He, I am He, I am the one that's doing what I'm supposed to do. And He turns around and says, so wake up, wake up yourself, O Jerusalem. In chapter 52, awake, awake, O Jerusalem. Be strong, put on your beautiful garments. Stand out of the dust. We did not look at it closely, but that series of commands ends with depart, depart, O Jerusalem. Not as slaves and exiles, but as victors and princes and princesses. Because, as we saw last week, your God reigns. This brings us into our passage for today, Isaiah chapter 52, beginning with verse 13, and then we will read through the end of chapter 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths and because of him. For that which he has been has not been told them they that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up. Before him, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from men, from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, and we have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, 
They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God to us, good news of his amazing grace. So let us ask that we may have strength and indeed courage to hear him speak to us today. So Father, we pray. As we come to this time in this service that you have appointed to this your word that we have in our language, that you would grant us by your spirit to hear you speak. Feed us upon your truth. Protect us, Father, from error, that we may be grown and strengthened and shaped to the glory of your image, the glory of your great love for us in Jesus. Amen. Last week we heard... Good news proclaimed. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, we heard. News of shalom. News of tov. Happiness of goodness. News of rescue and restoration. The word of that good news is your God reigns. That is good news. Because it's the good news of of God Himself doing exactly what God Himself promised. It's the good news of God doing what our souls hunger and thirst and ache and groan for Him to do. Exert your authority. Exert your power. Do and accomplish the goodness that you promised to us and to your world. It's good news. It's essential news. There's something special about that news. Notice who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. Verse 8 of chapter 52, the voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice together, they sing, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord. There's something about this good news. There's something about the reign of God that will be visible to our eyes. Well, then what are we looking for? 
We want to be able to see the reign of God. We want to be able to recognize the reign of God. We do not want to miss the reign of God because the reign of God is about His shalom, comprehensive human flourishing. It is about goodness. The goodness with which He created all things. Would we recognize the wisdom and power of God's reign playing itself out in our life? In our homes, at our dinner tables, in our dorms, in our workplaces, perhaps even in our little cubicle, would we recognize the reign of God as it exerts itself there? The question is not whether or not God is there. The question is not whether or not God is reigning in each one of these places and relationships that you may be identifying. The question is, do you see it? Can you recognize it? Would we recognize, celebrate, and participate in the wisdom and power of God's reign? Should we encounter it in the classroom? Should we encounter it in our dorm? Should we encounter it in all of our comings and goings? I want to offer you a warning because that is the implicit question that is posed to Israel in the preceding chapters. That is the question that is posed to Israel who were looking forward to a time when God's reign would be established visibly upon the earth. But this is the same question that is posed to us who look Backward to a day when the reign of God was made visible, when the presence of God's reign, the presence of his wisdom and power was made visible and audible and tangible. John emphasizes this repeatedly in his first epistle, epistle. That which we have seen, that which we have heard, that which we have manhandled. We declare to you. And so as the writer suggests, if it was urgent for the, for the Israelites to have a clear picture of what it was they were looking for, it is so much more urgent for us who have been given so much more. And so let's look at that. Because Isaiah, the Lord says through the prophet Isaiah, Behold! My servant, look and see my servant. Be on the lookout for this one who will embody my reign. Who will be in flesh and blood the walking, living, talking embodiment of my wisdom upon the earth even as it is in heaven. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. 
That language of wisely, some of you are looking through your ES, if you have your ESV open, your English Standard Version Bible open, you're going to see a lot of these words throughout our passage today have a little footnotes. And the bottom of the page is filled with alternative readings for these words. Because the passage is full and rich and complex. We're not going anywhere near the full complexity of it. But here I want you to look. My servant shall act wisely. An alternative reading for that is, my my servant shall prosper. Because the word that is there is the word for the powerful and prospering way of God's wisdom. It is by God's wisdom that he created all things. It is by God's wisdom that he created all things and could call them all good, 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 indeed very good. The goodness of God's creation is the manifestation of the fullness and the power of his wisdom. And that's what's in view here. My servant shall act wisely. That is to say, he will live in perfect accord. He will live in perfect fulfillment of all that characterizes my wisdom so that his life will flourish and he will cause the flourishing of many. That's what's in view here with this word wisely. It's the same word we encounter in Proverbs 1.3 where it says, Son, listen so that you may learn to live wisely. And so the entirety of, of the, of, excuse me, not Psalm, Proverbs. The entirety of Proverbs is about the wisdom of God as it's supposed to flesh out in our lives so that we might flourish and we may be the cause of flourishing for those who are around us. The way of wisdom is the way known throughout Scripture as the way of righteousness, the way of justice, the way of equity, the way of mercy. You can hear echoes of various prophets in that description. So throughout Scripture, wisdom is the vision and understanding and skill for living righteously and justly and equitably so as to flourish and to cause others to flourish because that's the way we were designed. Behold, my servant shall act in this way so that He shall be high and lifted up. His name will be great among the nations. He will perfectly embody the wisdom of God. And since that is what we all long to see in our lives, in the lives of those around us, and in the life of this world, it is helpful to consider what that wisdom looks like. And first, I want you to look. What does it appear as? To the eyes. Be careful. Because the wisdom and the power of God's glory and wisdom does not appear like we might expect. In fact, it is so marred beyond any human semblance that it is stunning. In verse 2 of chapter 53, It appears as a man of sorrow, someone who is acquainted with grief. 
That's not what we have in view when we think of the glory of God's love. That's not what we have in view when we think of the beauty of God's glory. And yet, he's saying, listen, when my servant comes, the servant who will perfectly fulfill every dimension of my wisdom, be careful. Because he will appear to you so marred that you will be tempted to turn away. The appearance is one thing, but then the work is something else. What is the work of God's wisdom? Well, look, chapter 53, verse 4. He bears our griefs. He carries our sorrows. He is pierced. He is crushed. He is chastised. He becomes a beast of burden. Further down, verse 7, he is oppressed. He is afflicted. He is silent. Remember Jesus before Pilate. He doesn't speak up in his own defense. Brothers and sisters, you understand that when we think of the power of God's glory, these are not the things that come to mind. Because we have learned that power always seeks more, more strength, more influence, more territory. These are not the words that we associate with power, never mind the power of the God who created all things. And so Isaiah is saying, be careful so that when he comes, you will recognize him, my servant. But notice this. Not only does it appear marred, and not only is the work entirely unexpected, and, but look at this, verse 10 of 53. It was the will of the Lord. The, this is the intent of God's wisdom. That is deeply offensive when you really stop to listen. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. So often we think of suffering as something that happens, that is somehow, somehow, we know, we know better as, as Presbyterians, but functionally in our gut, somehow our life is spun out of our control and out of God's control. And yet we say, our God is so powerful that he can even use things that are out of his control to his own ends. But that is not what our passage is saying. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It's not that the Lord said, Oh, well, Jesus, 
I wish you could have been a little bit wiser in all of your dealings with men, but since they're going to treat you this way, I might as well use it and make the best of it. Brothers and sisters, that's how we think. It is not how our Lord thinks. Remember Joseph when he spoke to his brothers, when, when all was said and done after all of those years, Joseph had been sold into slavery. He had been beaten. He had been imprisoned unjustly. What did Joseph say? Don't be afraid. What you intended for evil, the Lord, because he's such a cool guy, was able to use and turn to use for his purposes. That is not what he said. What you intended for evil, the Lord intended for good. Are you kidding me? Oh, the Lord intended for me to be sold into slavery? Yes. Oh, the Lord intended me for, me to, for me to be falsely accused? Yes. Oh, the Lord intended for me to be imprisoned? Yes. Oh, the Lord intended for me to be forgotten? Yes. What you intended for evil, Lord intended for good. Because, brothers and sisters, that is the wisdom of God's reign. It doesn't appear as we might expect it. It doesn't act like we expect it. It doesn't speak like we would expect. It doesn't intend and function the way we might expect. This is the way of God's wisdom for salvation. Of course, most of us in this room are recognizing immediately, oh my word, he's describing Jesus. And Isaiah has told us as much. If you turn back to Isaiah 52, look at verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Good news of shalom, good news of tov, and good news of Yeshua. It's the Hebrew name of Jesus. And you shall see that Yeshua as it comes into the city. Which is why, have you ever wondered, why did the angel instruct Mary and Joseph to name their child Yeshua? This is the way of God's, the, the, the way of God's wisdom for salvation. Now, you have to understand why this is so stunning. And please bear with me. As North Americans, it is so easy for us to lose sight of why this is so stunning. Because we have such an allergy to the bad news that has gone before in the ministry of Isaiah. We're so uncomfortable with the bad news that Isaiah has been preaching that we want to rush through it all and get to the good stuff. But the reason this is so stunning is because Israel has proven itself again and again and again to be faithless and fickle as God's people. They have proven themselves again and again and again to be unbelievers. 
And our instinct in, in the face of that fact is to say, is to say, wipe them off the face of the earth and start over. But that is not the glory of our God. The glory of our God is to say, now you see that you can't do this, right? Therefore, according to my wisdom, I will do for you what you have proven yourself incapable of doing for yourself. It is good news, brothers and sisters, when we recognize our absolute inability to live wisely. Because it is at that point that we find ourselves hungering and thirsting desperately for the work of God for the wisdom of God, for the righteousness of God, for the peace of God. Matthew 5, 17, which is ours through Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, it is, it is good. It is good for the Lord to imprison us. It is good for the Lord to sell us into slavery. It is good when we are falsely accused. Not because in itself it is good, in that it, not because in itself it feels good, but because it purges us of our self-glorying, of our self-reliance, and casts us upon the mercy of God's wisdom, the cross of Jesus Christ. It is not only the way of God's wisdom for salvation, it is the way of God's wisdom for the life that we now enjoy in Christ. You see, it's not just that Christ came and did an amazing thing. Christ came and did an amazing thing because that's how our God reigns. Because that's the wisdom of our God. That's how he has structured the kingdom of heaven that we long to see upon the earth. That's how it ordered it. It's in understanding and coming to know that and bowing our knee to that that we begin to taste and see the sweetness of his shalom and happiness. This is the way of flourishing and being an instrument of flourishing. It is the wise pattern of God's comprehensive human flourishing. So, some of you are still wondering, why did I splash Daniel in the face? Because what is baptism? Baptism is a sign and seal of the wisdom of God's amazing grace. That, 52 verses 14 and 15, startle us. That word there for sprinkle is a homonym for a word that also means startle. In Hebrew, they look exactly the same. It's like right and right. Is it the right hand or I have a right? Two separate words that look identical. Here is the same thing in Hebrew. It's two separate words that, mean the, that, that look identical. 
And one word means sprinkle, and the other word, as some of your footnotes will indicate, means startle. And I think that it's this latter that ought to be the word in there because, one, it parallels the, the language of astonishment at the beginning of verse 14. But two, it makes the point that God's wisdom is not our wisdom. God's ways are not our ways. They startle us at every turn. The fact of baptism, if we understood what baptism was all about, we would all watch in stunned silence. To behold the power of the Creator God stooping down to delight to publicly call us His sons and daughters. What kind of God does that? No God nor no gods from among the nations do that. There is only one. And His name is Yahweh. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that is his glory. Why is it so hard for us to see that? Well, one of the reasons is because we are addicted to what Martin Luther would call the theology of glory. And a theology of glory, and a theology of glory approaches Christianity and, and to life that tries in various ways to minimize difficult and painful things. That's the way our country was built. In a theology of um, glory, our, the emphasis is on our ability and upon human reason. A theologian of glory assumes that there's a basic continuity between the way the world is and the way God acts. In the world, strength is demonstrated through raw power and through raw power, and so we assume that's how God acts. But in theology of the cross, by contrast, sees the cross as revealing the fundamental nature of God, the, revealing the character of the triune God's love. It is a love that stoops down. It is a love that delights to take upon itself the burden of the other. It is a love that, that delights to, to absorb the sin of those around. This is the theology of forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, by nature, we are all theologians of glory. But by God's amazing grace, we become theologians of the cross. And the question is this. How do I know if I'm a theologian of acting as a theologian of glory or as a theologian of the cross? When faced with the opportunity to forgive one another, how willing are you to do that? I can't forgive them until they, until they do X, Y, or Z. That's a theologian of glory. How about this one? How quick are you to recognize your sin in any given situation? How quick are you to own it? That's me. That's mine. G.K. Chesterton, in response to the question, what is wrong with the world, answers me. 
never mind recognizing and owning it, how quick are you and how willing are you to confess it with your lips? Every time I think of this, I think of Fonzie, who one day sat with Mrs. C and she convinced him that he was wrong and so he said, you're right, Mrs. C, I'm wrong. I was wrong. And I remember that because that is me. I can't confess my sin because deep down I'm a theologian of glory. Never mind confessing it. What about repenting of it? What about giving up my rights so that someone else may flourish? These are tests of whether or not we recognize the wisdom of God's reign in his servant. Because the wisdom of God's reign in his servant is the wisdom of God's reign in our lives. Will we recognize it and bow our knee to it? It doesn't seem right, which is why we need the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. That we may behold it, we may marvel at it, we may rejoice in it. Let's go to him in prayer.